haven't met you before. My name is Angel, and I'm one of the pastors here at CTK. I'm really excited to learn with you from God's Word together this morning. If you have your Bible or a Bible app with you, you can turn to John chapter 21. That's where we'll be hanging out today. And if you don't have one of those things with you, you'll find everything that you need to follow along with the message at info.ctk.church. We are just turning the page into the month of May, and when I was a little girl, I always knew when April was coming to an end, because that meant opening day for fishing at Lake Padden. My dad, who normally slept in on the weekends, would be up at the crack of dawn getting ready to find his perfect fishing place on the lake. Now that I'm a mom, I'm not sure if my dad loved fishing or just really wanted some peace and quiet. He was the dad of four daughters, after all. He might have needed a little guide time. Either way, uh, on occasion, I got to go fishing with my dad. And I remember one particular fishing trip when my sister Julie and I loaded up the gear and went to the lake with my dad. And... um, My dad had a rule. If you were going to fish, you had to bait your own hook. So here's the thing. I did not mind that at all when I was fishing with power bait and marshmallows. But when I had to put a wiggly worm on that hook, I spent more time squirming and squilling than I did actually baiting the hook. But on this particular fishing excursion, getting the hook baited was not my biggest challenge. For whatever reason, every time I tried to cast, my line would just plunk in the lake a few feet in front of me. Please tell me that somebody else has had that experience. I know. Good. In the back they have. I'm, I'm not maybe the best fisher, but here I was throwing my line out, plunk, and then I'd have to bring it back in and try again. And of course, with all those redos, eventually what happens I lose my bait. So now we have to bait the hook again back to square one. I think at that point my dad just did it for me so that we could actually move forward with fishing. So this time though, I was determined. I was going to cast like I had never casted before and I pulled my rod back and I flung it and I heard that sweet, sweet sound of the fishing line unwinding. The only problem is I never heard the plunk of the line hitting the lake because as it turned out, there was a branch hanging over the lake and I had managed to get my line tangled in it while casting. And probably the best idea at this point would have been to just cut the line and start again. Uh, But fishing gear is not cheap. And as my dad always said, money doesn't grow on trees. Apparently it gets tangled in them, but it doesn't grow on them. So I did the only thing I could do, and I climbed the tree, and I went out on the branch, and I attempted (laughs) to untangle my line. The problem is the branch was not very big, and (laughs) unfortunately it broke, and I ended up in the lake and pretty wet. I asked my dad the other day if he remembered this fishing trip, and he said, Angel, those are not the kind of fishing trips you forget. He also reminded me that it happened on a Father's Day, so now I feel really bad because I'm absolutely confident that my dad spent more time untangling fishing line than he actually spent fishing that day. I don't think I'm the only aspiring fisher who ever discovered that not every fishing trip is successful. And apparently that's true even if you are career fishermen, because in John 21, we drop in on the disciples and they aren't having the best fishing day. I want to give you a little bit of context 
This uh, event that we're about to read about actually happened after all the events we just celebrated at Easter. So Jesus has been arrested, crucified, buried, and he's risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples a couple of times, but he's not living with them and doing life with them day in and day out like he used to. And that's where we find them in verse 1 of John chapter 21. It says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. If you know much about Peter, then you will not be surprised that he was the first one to get bored. See, Peter was a go-getter. Some people might say that Peter was pretty impulsive. In fact, he was often found acting first and thinking next. So it's not a big surprise on this particular day that Peter is the first one to get bored. And so he decides to go fishing, and his friends say, sure, sounds like a good idea. But they fished all night, and they didn't catch a thing. It was shaping up to be a really disappointing fishing trip. But then Jesus shows up in verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Remember how I said that Peter was a little impulsive? (laughs) Case in point here, right? Peter hears that it's Jesus on the shore, and he doesn't hesitate. He just jumps in the water and starts swimming. But his friends took a more conservative approach. It says, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they had landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. What a fishing trip, right? From fishing all night and catching nothing to nets that were full of fish and breakfast ready for you on the beach when you got back. We're going to put a bookmark there because we are going to go back to this story. But before we do, I just wanted to pause because I absolutely love the heart of Jesus that is reflected in this story. See, at this point, there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus is God. He's died. He's risen from the dead. Clearly, he is God. And yet here we find him serving his disciples. He doesn't say, hey guys, I helped you catch some fish. Why don't you, you know, make me some breakfast and we can chat. Nope. Instead, he has breakfast ready for them when they get to the beach. 
That's who Jesus was. He was a servant, not just on this morning, but throughout his entire life in ministry, we see Jesus serving. He served people who were lonely, people who were hungry, people who were grieving, people who were sick, and even people who everybody else rejected. Before we read the rest of the passage in John 21, I have to let you in on something. Have you ever been a part of a conversation where you could tell by the body language or just the way people were acting that there was something more going on than just the words they were saying out loud? There was clearly something happening under the surface. Well, that's the kind of conversation that Jesus and Peter are, happen are having here. There is a significant backstory that we really need to understand in order to get what's happening between Jesus and Peter in this next part of John 21. I'm gonna do my best to give you kind of the Cliff Notes version. The first thing is we have to remember this conversation is happening after Jesus's crucifixion, which also means it's not long after Peter has denied knowing Jesus at all. If you're not familiar with the story, just before Jesus dies, he has dinner with all 12 of his closest friends, and he tells them, hey, 12 close friends, guess what? One of you is going to sell me out to my enemies, and the rest of you are going to run and hide and scatter. Of course, when Peter hears this, he's like, no way, Lord, no matter what, I would never turn my back on you. Peter even said, even if I have to die, I'm never going to desert you. Jesus responded with words that Peter did not want to hear. Because Jesus knew that no matter what Peter was saying in the moment, the truth was when push came to shove, Peter was going to deny him. Fast forward a few hours, Jesus is arrested, and Peter denies being Jesus' friend or follower. In fact, he denies ever knowing him at all. So, so much for Peter's promises. We know that at this point, Peter's actually seen Jesus a few times since he was risen from the dead, but we have no idea what they've talked about. Apparently, they haven't talked about the denial. We also know that Peter is using, he's going by the name Simon. And that's a big deal because Simon was Peter's given name. It's the name that he had before he met Jesus. But when he met Jesus, Jesus gave him a new name. He called him Peter, which means the rock. So that means that he had the title before Dwayne Johnson did. We don't know if Peter decided to start going by Simon again or his friends decided for him. But we do know that at this point, Peter's going by plain old Simon. And we also know that not only has Peter gone back to his old name, he's also gone back to his old life. Because before Peter met Jesus, he was a fisherman. And now that Peter's kind of in this in-between place and he doesn't know really what to do with himself, he's gone back to fishing. And that's where Jesus finds him on the shore that morning. So with that in mind, we can read what happens next between Jesus and Peter. In verse 15, it says, When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he says, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for a third time, do you love me? 
He said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I wonder if Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Because Peter denied him three times. It's almost as if Jesus and his love and mercy is giving Peter the opportunity to just take it all back, to wipe the slate clean. This conversation was a chance for Jesus and Peter to talk about the elephant in the room. Peter had denied Jesus. He knew it, and Jesus knew it, and they needed to talk about it. So here's a question that I grappled with this week. When it comes to my relationship with Jesus, is there an elephant in the room? Are there things that I am avoiding talking to God about? They're there, I know it, God knows it, but I just don't want to talk about it. Are there areas of sin in my life, attitudes, behaviors, responses, that I know either directly defy God's instruction for me or in some way make Jesus less important than whatever that thing is that I'm holding on to? Are there elephants in the room? I'll talk to God about how much I love him or what I need for him, from him or what my friends need for him, from him, but somehow the elephants just never come up. It reminds me of an interaction I had with one of my kiddos this week. He had been kind of disrespectful, and so I sent him up to his room. And after he had a little while to calm down, I just kind of moseyed into his room to create an opportunity for conversation. He had his binoculars out, and he talked to me about birds. He talked to me about a very high and, might I add, pretty dangerous rope swing that he wanted to build. He even read me numbers off the street sign across the street. He was determined to talk about anything and everything except for the one thing that was most important for us to discuss. And I get it, because talking about our shortcomings is really hard. Turning towards a problem rather than hiding from it feels risky. But the work of relational repair is what leads to real deep connection with God and with others. And so even though it feels risky, even though it's hard, it is absolutely worth it. And here's the thing. If we're avoiding talking to God about something, there's something we should keep in mind. He already knows. Our confession is not going to surprise him. But what we will get by talking to him about it is an open door to God's mercy and grace and forgiveness in our life. That's what Peter did. Peter had blown it big time. He spent years of his life as one of Jesus' closest friends, and in the end, he chose self-preservation and his own reputation over Jesus. And after all of that, Jesus shows up and invites Peter back into relationship with him. And that's an invitation that is open to every one of us. God is always calling us back to himself. No matter what we've done, no matter how we wandered, no matter how many years we've followed him to just fall in the ditch, God is always inviting us back into relationship with him. When we blow it, and we all do, the only question God is asking is, do you love me? Do you love me first and most? Are you willing to turn away from that sin in your life and turn back towards me? And if our answer is yes, then his response is always, 
always to forgive and to restore our relationship with him. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus not only has the power to forgive, but he is also full of love and grace and mercy. And he actually wants full, real, deep, connected relationship with us. He is always ready whenever we are to have the conversations that lead to restoration in our relationship with him. And as it turns out, our relationship with Jesus is just the beginning of what God wants to do in and through our lives. Jesus showed up on the beach to have a conversation with Peter about their relationship, but he also wanted to talk to Peter about what he wanted to do in and through Peter's life because of their relationship. Jesus asked, do you love me? And when Peter says yes, Jesus says, feed my lambs. In other words, Peter, if you love me, I have a job for you. And each time Jesus asks if Peter loves him, and Peter says, yes, Jesus says, feed my sheep or take care of my lambs. Jesus gives Peter a way to demonstrate his love for him. And look, I'm sure that Peter is thinking he is completely disqualified from being used by God. He's blown it. He's messed up. He's, he's denied knowing Jesus at all. Clearly, he probably doesn't feel like the man for the job. But lucky for us, we have an entire Bible full of examples of God using imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. And that's actually true for us as well. When we love Jesus, he invites us to participate in the work that he is doing in the world around us. We have the opportunity to partner with God in his mission to restore all things to himself. Let me issue a little spoil alert for you. For those of you who are taking the rooted study, I'm going to fast forward to week six for just a moment here. In week six, the authors say this, God redeemed us, and it's out of our love for him that we can be Christ's hands and feet to care for the world and those in it. We are invited to be God's agents of reconciliation, mercy, truth, wisdom, and hope. I love the use of words there. We are invited to be God's agents. I kind of wish I could just inspire you all by playing the Mission Impossible soundtrack right now so that you could see yourself as agents of reconciliation. There's the soundtrack. <laughs> Gabe is awesome in the back. He's our AV guy, right? We are agents of reconciliation. If we saw ourselves like that, how powerful would it be? God wants to use us as part of his plan to restore all of creation back to the way that he intended it before sin ever entered the world. We don't have to look hard these days to see that the world is hurting. There is hunger and suffering and loneliness and there's injustice and God wants to do something about it. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are designed by God on purpose for a purpose. 
Maybe you needed to hear that this morning. Maybe you needed to be reminded. You are designed by God on purpose and for a purpose. God has a plan and there is a part for you to play in accomplishing God's mission on earth. In the Lord's Prayer that a lot of us learn to pray at some point in our faith journey, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to do more than pray for God's kingdom to come. We can actually do good things which help God's kingdom to come on earth. I can't help but wonder how different the world would be if we actually did what God was calling us to do. What would happen to things like racial tensions, hunger, the epidemic of loneliness if we lived out our calling? How would people think about Christians, or more importantly, how would they think about Christ if his followers actually lived as agents of reconciliation? It's so easy to get discouraged and think of all of the reasons why this sounds like pie-in-the-sky thinking. Things like, I'm too messed up, or I'm too busy, or the world is too messed up, the problem's just too big, or the church is too messed up to be effective. And you know what? There's probably some truth to all of that. But it doesn't surprise God. And he has a plan. And his plan still includes using us. I think the biggest thing standing in our way isn't our own limitations or even how big the problem is. I think the biggest thing standing in our way is embracing the fact that we have been called. That God has a plan and a purpose for us to help him accomplish in this world. I referred to the Mission Impossible soundtrack, and we even got to hear it, but I have a confession to make. I've never actually seen any of the Mission Impossibles. I know. It was shocking to a lot of people. But even having never seen it, I know the theme song, and I know one more thing. I know that in, at least in the television series, every time they are given a mission, it's accompanied by this phrase, your mission should you choose to accept it. And that's really the key, right? Because we can be given a mission, but if we never choose to accept it, then nothing changes at all. It's not really our mission. We just go on as if life, nothing happened. But God wants more for us. There are incredible blessings and a depth of relationship with God that we only experience when we choose to partner with him on mission. There are things, there is depth and connection with God that we only experience when we choose to partner with him on mission. So exactly what is the mission? What is it that God's inviting us to participate in? In Galatians 5, 6, there's a church that is fighting about what are the true marks of being a follower of Jesus. And some people in this church are saying, if you are not circumcised, you are not actually a follower of Jesus. And this seems a little extreme to us these days, but entire churches have split over the same kind of question. What is and is not Christian enough behavior? So Paul writes to this church and he says, hey, you guys, you are concerned about all of the wrong things. And then in verse six, he writes this, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through 
love. Did you get what Paul said? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul's saying if you want to know the mark that Jesus is looking for, it's this, love others. That's what Jesus cares about. That's what matters most. Not a bunch of religious showing off. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, what is the most important thing we can do as your followers? He says this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what is most important, it's this, love God and love others. In another section of the Bible, when Jesus is talking about the importance of loving God and loving others, he also follows it up by saying, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. He doesn't just want us to serve for the sake of others. He also wants us to experience the life that is truly life, life life-giving life that comes from partnering with him on mission. In Matthew 25, Jesus gets even more specific about what love looks like. And he's telling a story about what the kingdom of God is like. And he says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And he concludes in verse 40 by saying, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus is saying you demonstrate your love for me by serving others. You guys, I could seriously go on for another 15 minutes and not run out of scripture that all point in the same direction. Our mission wasn't written in a secret code that is hard to decipher. First, Jesus modeled it in the way that he lived his life. And then he taught it over and over and over again. And ultimately, Jesus gave his own life up in an act of service. And then just to make sure that we still got the point, he inspired the authors of the New Testament, like like James and Paul, to remind us over and over and over again of our work. Our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to love God more than anything and to demonstrate our love for him by serving the people he loves. Our mission is to love God more than anything and to show that by serving the people he loves. And by the way, God loves everyone. So that means serving people we disagree with, serving people we don't get along with, serving people that are very different than us, serving the people he loves. I think it's only fair that I warn you though, the mission that we've been called to is clear, but it isn't easy. Living a life on mission costs us something. Sometimes uh, God is 
pretty funny with me. Often, if you're going to preach something, he gives you the opportunity to put your money where your mouth is. And that happened for me this week. I'd set aside Monday uh, to do a lot of preparation for this message. I kind of knew where it was going, but I had a lot of work to do, and I needed to get the notes in by Wednesday. So it was feeling kind of urgent. So I was really looking forward to this day where I could just dive into God's word, do some Greek word studies, and uh, seek God's wisdom. But then my text alert went off. It was my neighbor Amy, and Amy's recently been in an accident, so I wanted to make sure that if she needed something, I was available to help her. But then what she started to tell me about was not her own need, but the need of somebody else. Someone I didn't know, and quite frankly, someone I didn't have time for. But as Amy shared with me the story of an older woman who lived alone, who was lonely and struggling with depression, and who was hungry and needed something to eat, it became so obvious. Was I really going to pass up an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus because I was too busy writing a message about being the hands and feet of Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. This was an opportunity for me to live out my mission, to actually do what God says is my mission in life. It wasn't an opportunity that I wanted and certainly not one that was convenient for me. And quite frankly, my life has kind of gone all in with this service thing, so I was not looking for one more thing to do. But there I was with an opportunity to love and serve, and I could either accept the mission or I could pretend like the invitation never came and just go forward with my plans. So I rethought my day, and a few hours later, I was grocery shopping and helping my new friend run some errands. In the end, it turned out that she was more lonely than hungry. But my showing up brought her some joy and a few of her favorite foods. And while I was there, she thanked me repeatedly. And that gave me the opportunity to let her know that I was happy to be the person who could show up and remind her that God sees her, he loves her, and he cares about what she's going through. I could have been irritated when I left because the food crisis was not nearly as urgent as it seemed. I could have been frustrated because I spent money on groceries that weren't needed and maybe wouldn't even be eaten. And I could have been annoyed because even though I brought all those groceries, she wanted a ride to the store to get Gatorade too. But I didn't feel any of those things. What I felt was content because even though I was now very behind on my sermon prep, I had no doubt that I had done exactly what God wanted me to do with my day. I'd been given a mission to meet a new friend, and I'd completed that mission. That time, I did it. With some practice under my belt with serving, I've come to understand that the results of our service are not for us to be concerned with. What God wants to accomplish when we serve is completely up to him. We don't always get to see the good. Our part is to show up in Jesus' name. I've had opportunities to show up in Jesus' name when I've said yes, and there have also been lots of times that I've said no. Usually when I don't accept my mission, it's because I'm not willing to pay the cost. When we say yes to life on mission, there is a cost. There will be times when you have to pass on things that you want to do in order to do the things you know God wants you to do. 
your schedule will probably have to be reprioritized if you want to make time for serving. You may spend more of your resources on other people, and that will leave less for you to spend on yourself. And there's one thing that I can promise. Your relationships will get more complicated if you choose to engage with people who are very different from you. There will be times when serving brings you more joy than you ever knew was possible, and there will be times when it is harder than you wish it was. But Jesus said that he came that we might have life and have it to the full. And part of that full life is what comes when we partner with him in the work that he is doing in the world around us. Whatever we give up to serve now will be more than given back in blessing, not only now, but in all of eternity. So your mission, my mission, right? Our mission, all of us, everyone who calls ourselves the followers of Jesus, our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to express our love for God by serving others in Jesus' name. What that looks like is different for different people. I thought I would share with you what it looks like in some of my friends' lives. My friend DJ works in construction. So he serves God by building things, whether that's houses for pastors or safe houses for women being rescued from human trafficking. My friend Jennifer shows her love for Jesus by becoming first a foster mom and then an adoptive mom to medically fragile children. Tracy delivers food to hungry people. And Lori has spent countless hours developing deep relationships with young women who have struggled with addiction. How we serve will be as unique as our lives. What it looks like for you won't be the same as for someone else, but what matters is that you serve. And not just sometimes or on occasion so that you can check it off your list, but you serve as a lifestyle, as a priority, as if it was your mission, because it is, if you choose to accept it. So whether your next step is to feed hungry people by getting connected at the farm or to teach kids about Jesus by reaching out to our children's ministries, maybe it's for you, it's take on one of your neighbor's lawns and just take care of it this summer. Or maybe it's having a new perspective at work and deciding to see how you can serve your coworkers. Whatever your next step is, I hope that you'll take it. Not because you should or because you have to, but because God has something incredible in store for us when we partner with him on his mission to restore the world. In his book, Love Does, Bob Goff wrote this. In the end, love doesn't keep thinking about it or planning for it. Simply put, love does. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so merciful and loving and kind and forgiving and faithful. And Lord, when we blow it, and we all do, when we mess up, God, would we remember your faithfulness? Would we remember your kindness? Would we remember your love and your grace and your mercy? And God, would that knowledge of you, would that understanding of who you are bring us to a place where we can talk about the elephants in the room? 
where we can have real conversations about the things in our life that are keeping us from fully experiencing a depth of relationship with you. God, would you help us to have the courage this week to talk about the things that are between us that you know. And you're just waiting for us to come so that you can shower us with your grace and your mercy and your restoration and your wholeness. And Lord, out of a depth of relationship with you, Lord, would you help us to live as people who are sent out into the world? God, help us to be people who are agents of reconciliation. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. And for whatever reason, Lord, you have chosen to use us, imperfect, messed up, fallible beings, but God, you still want to use us to accomplish your purpose in the world. And so, Lord, we want to say yes, not just to the theory of it, not just to the idea, not just that we wish other people would, but God, we want to say yes and go all in with our lives and see how we can make a difference in the world around us as we partner with you in your mission. So Lord, help us to say yes. In the power of Jesus' name we pray.